hold a credit card, buy a house, or take out a loan in her own name. Serve on a jury. Be pregnant and keep your job. Attend military academies and Ivy League schools. Refuse sex from husbands. Fight on the front lines. Take legal action against sexual harassment at work. Access contraceptives of her own choice. Even as American women won the right to vote in 1920, they could do none of these things on their own. Sometimes barred by law and sometimes by custom, this list just scratches the surface of inequality and inequity that assumed women were primarily and naturally wives and mothers, and therefore did not need access to the fullest possible public and personal life. The fight for suffrage had taken more than 70 years, and yet American women would need the rest of the 20th century to expand their rights. As in previous generations, women built on previous movements and developed new ones, putting pressure on public and private institutions to demand rights. But from World War II to the end of the century, women of all different backgrounds, classes, ethnicities, sexual orientations, and experiences increasingly challenged white, middle-class women as the sole purveyors of feminism and arbiters of women's rights. But women also used the political system, the federal court system, the power of organizing, and the strength of their individual and alarmingly common experiences to speak truth to power, demanding the equal rights, access, and justice promised in American life. And they are still fighting for equality in the 21st century. On this episode of Hindsight, we will explore women's activism from World War II to the present day. We will examine the ways in which women used war and government work to expand economic and professional opportunities, while others remained unconvinced that equal access would improve their lives. We will discover how a little-known section of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 provided the opening wedge to end discrimination on the basis of sex. And we will see how women of color, lesbians, Chicanas, and working-class women challenged what constituted women's rights and what was worth fighting for. So join me, Dr. Robin Henry, for Episode 5, Speaking Truth to Power. following the ratification of the 19th Amendment, women of all backgrounds went to work, but with mixed results. African-American women, primarily left out of the 19th Amendment's rights, continued to advocate for enforcing suffrage rights. But as horrific race massacres and a resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan ushered in the 1920s for African-Americans across the country, activists like Ida B. Wells Barnett continued to advocate for an anti-lynching law and pressured federal, state, and city governments to protect the basic rights, life, liberty, and property, of black Americans. Immigrant women faced a backlash of nativist sentiment. Labor activists who had seen important regulatory gains in the 19-teens saw their collective power almost disappear as the Anglo middle class associated the labor movement with anarchy, communism, and revolution. Radical women like Emma Goldman were deported. White middle class women who had spearheaded many of the suffrage organizations saw the most gains in the 1920s. Women continued to expand their presence in the workforce, in particular in professional work, such as nursing, teaching, and social work. 
Women with the right look found work behind the counters of department stores. Well-spoken women found opportunity in working as telephone operators. Women like Helen Hamilton Gardner and Frances Perkins turned to government work. As more government positions fell under the Civil Service Act, women found they could make a mark on public policy. In all, women were 20% of the workforce by 1920. Greater numbers of women continued to work during the Great Depression, mostly because 90% of their positions were deemed essential. By 1940, women were 24% of the overall workforce. Four years later, women constituted 33% of the workforce. World War II would see an increase in women's overall representation in the workforce, as well as an expansion of the type of work. For the first time since World War I, women entered into industrial jobs in large numbers. More than 6 million women entered the workforce, and the manufacturing sector increased the numbers of women by 110%. Women also joined the armed forces and played a more significant role. While women most often served as part of the nursing corps in the 20th century, nearly 200,000 served in the Women's Army Corps, the naval equivalent, Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service, or WAVES, and the Women's Auxiliary Units for the Army Air Force, Coast Guard, and Marine Corps. Initially, female enlistees took over desk jobs, secretarial work, and lighter technical work, such as telephone and telegraph operators, in order to free up men to fight. But over the duration of the war, women proved willing to take on new opportunities and expand their roles. As pilots, women flew mail into North Africa, New Guinea, and throughout Europe. Two weeks after the Allied forces landed in Normandy, women routinely flew in supplies. However, because of the greater scope and scale of the Second World War, more women, and in particular more married women with children, went to work. For the first time, private companies in the federal government had to deal with the issue of childcare. If they wanted the women to work, some arrangement for their children must be made. On June 29, 1943, the U.S. Senate passed the Lanham Act, the first and only national child care program. This act provided $20 million for public care for children whose mothers were employed during World War II. At its peak in July of 1944, there were 3,102 federally subsidized child care facilities, with 130,000 children enrolled. By the end of the war, around 600,000 children had spent time in one of these facilities. Of course, not every family had access, and women still often had to rely on family, neighbors, or fellow workers for child care. When these programs ended in 1946, the current phase of the child care crisis, either in availability or in affordability, began. Access to child care continues to be a significant barrier for many women entering into and advancing through the workforce at the same rate as their male counterparts and remains one of the significant gender-based inequalities in American life that neither the right to vote nor greater presence in the workforce has solved. Strategic advocacy aligned with wartime need also positively affected African-American women. As Dr. Kiana Irvin, professor of history at the University of Missouri, points out, the war and the post-war period had a sizable impact on black women's labor. In the early to mid-20th century, African-American women are overrepresented in, in the sector of domestic labor, household labor. Um, and World War II gives them the opportunity, in a sense, to really challenge that, right? So there's labor shortages as a result of World War II. You know, there are all kinds of wartime propaganda campaigns around, you know, building up a kind of new workforce. Women workers are very much a part of that. Black women workers are a part of that. So World War II provides a kind of a portal of, of, of entry by which African-American women can kind of insert themselves into the industrial workforce in ways that they could not prior to that moment. So they're, they're confined, really, to domestic labor. World War II, years of World War II, 
provide an opportunity for them to become defense workers um, in all kinds of plants across the country. They make better wages. Their conditions, in some cases, are a bit better. And, and, and they're also able to advocate. They have, they have new opportunities for advocacy, right? So the FEPC legislation, just legislation around trying to, the push of the March on Washington movement, not the one in the 1960s, right, but the one in the 1940s. A. Philip Randolph is the key organizer behind that effort. Um, the push is to, simp- is to do many things, but at its heart is to open up these defense jobs that, these companies that have federal contracts to black workers, right, to empower the black working class to be just as as successful, to be just as vital as any other set of American workers in the time. While the larger labor movement often left African-Americans and women out of its platform, Randolph's March on Washington movement did not. Instead, he chose to lean into the realities of African-American life and the lives of black women in particular, to include them as advocates and beneficiaries of the movement. Now, St. Louis had one of the largest and most active March on Washington movement chapters of the country. Uh, My colleague David Lukender um, brings this out powerfully in his book on the subject. Um, And African-American women are crucial to that effort. They become kind of the face of the beleaguered uh, black worker uh, in the the efforts of, of the local March on Washington movement to you know, make real kind of the, the, the promise of American democracy. Um, so it, it, it provides a kind of um, greater level, I would say, of visibility for, for African-American women to plead their cause, to make their case. But what did all this work, service, and advocacy get women? While they tended to vote in limited numbers and to choose the more conservative candidate, the opportunities that opened up for women seemed to signal that the vote itself mattered. Women, such as Alice Paul and Crystal Eastman, remained less convinced. As advocates for an equal rights amendment, they saw the vote as a tool, but without protection from sex-based discrimination, the legal and customary inequality that women faced in all aspects of American life remained unchanged. Since white women typically chose the more conservative candidate, they chose to use their vote to support conservative measures, not to support candidates and policies that would dismantle the gendered hierarchies that relegated women to a second-class status. After the war, the government and private industry encouraged women to go back home. The message was pretty clear and coming from a number of directions. In many cases, women got fired or demoted. Employers told women that it was unpatriotic to take a job from a man who had served in the war. When government child care programs ended in 1946, women were needed to take care of the children. Even foreign policy had a hand in the message. Historian Elaine Tyler May argues that during the Cold War, the benefits of American democracy were most clearly seen through the ability of most middle-class white households to purchase a house and rely on a husband's single income. The privilege was what many conservative women saw as women's rights, the right to be protected, cared for, taken care of, and to have the time to take on their natural role as wife and mother. Statistically, the number of working women continued to increase, but many professionally trained women found these barriers limiting to their career aspirations and plans. For African-American women, though, the post-war world presented an interesting opportunity. While the black middle class existed and expanded before World War II, the access to military-industrial jobs meant that millions more African-Americans now had middle-class jobs with enough money for their families to buy a home and live off a single paycheck. This meant that some black women, who had mostly always worked, could choose to stay home and raise their families. 
Many white women who often continued to employ black domestic workers saw this change in the racial and gendered status quo as an affront to their own freedom to stay home. Black women, on the other hand, while more susceptible to the economic influences of segregation, framed their post-war liberation as the freedom to stay at their home and take care of their own children. This conflicting vision of post-war America caused tension a decade later in the 1950s and would serve as a clear example that not all women define liberation in the same ways. As Dr. Kiana Irvin explains, using events in St. Louis as an example, Working-class African-American women faced different challenges and in many ways were less the beneficiaries of post-war changes than they were reacting to them. In the post-World War II period, St. Louis is undergoing, like many cities, uh, like Detroit, for instance, um, a profound period of of urban decline, declining tax base, um, white flight, capital flight, right, the erection of public housing, these are all uh, transformations that deeply shape, the, I should say, too, the, the raising of older black working class neighborhoods. Mill Creek Valley is a good example of that. Um, the displacement of so many black working class people and then their confinement to kind of public housing in certain areas in the city creates a new kind of battleground, right, for African-American working class women to 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 fight, right, to to to, to situate themselves. And so this... This comes up most powerfully in the realm of public housing. There's, there's, a, there's a long history here, but essentially African-American women, their families, they move in with their children particularly. Low-income African-American women move into these, these um, facilities in the 1950s and onward. This is segregated housing. There's a lack of maintenance. Um, there's a the good deal of kind of back-and-forth struggle between residents and the St. Louis Housing Authority. It culminates in, after years and years of complaints, years and years of of organizing at the community level, culminates in a rent strike in the late 1960s that that finds over, you know, a thousand, uh, eventually over a thousand African-American women basically withholding their rent across public housing units in in the country, public housing developments in the country. And they eventually win, actually. They call for a number of things, uh, greater maintenance, um, caps on rent payments. And these struggles reverberate nationally. So strike leaders are actually starting or or move outward uh, from local to national and start to shape kind of federal housing legislation as a result of this. So these post-war developments provide a kind of new battleground to think about issues like housing and to connect Right, issues of employment to housing. So many of these women who are who are striking against now the St. Louis Housing Authority are ra- also raising issues around employment, saying part of the issue here is that we that that jobs are are no longer here, that we don't have good um, decent jobs even in our communities um, with which to pay rent to to the housing authority to begin with. So these connections are are, are coming together in, in rather powerful ways in the post World War II period. In fact, the African-American women that Dr. Irvin talks about are not anomalies of political and social activism in the 1950s. Women remained active during the late 1940s and 1950s. They continued to challenge the status quo. They continued to attend universities, seek professional employment, and work within progressive politics that attempted to address economic, racial, and gendered inequalities. They just weren't the center of political and social attention. 
Often misunderstood, the 1950s was indeed a decade of consensus in which the House Committee on Un-American Activities, Senator Joseph McCarthy, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation hunted out communists, radicals, and those they saw as unnecessarily critical of the United States' post-war successes. However, it was also a decade in which political activists continued their work. Without minimizing the real constraints that McCarthyism played in people's lives and the damage that it did, consensus did not, in the end, stamp out all political and social criticism as the United States transitioned from World War II to the early stages of the Cold War. And women played a part in that. According to historian Jacqueline Castledine, they were an active force in the left-wing Progressive Party and formed Women for Wallace to support Henry A. Wallace, the party's presidential nominee in 1948. Betty Friedan, for example, who is probably most known for her activism during the 1960s and 1970s, and who we'll get to a little bit later in this episode, started her career in journalism, writing for the labor publication of the United Electrical Workers, UE News. Historian Dan Horowitz argues that it was Friedan's work in labor that led her to see the oppression of women. Radicals weren't all dead. Activists weren't all in hiding. Women weren't all at home. In fact, many of the challenges to the racial, gendered, and class-based status quo formed the basis of powerful civil rights movements in the 1960s and 1970s. So what changed for women? How do we get from consensus and sidelined activism to women's liberation movement and marches within a decade? Three critical developments occurred in the early 1960s that, while not starting the women's movement from zero, brought it back into the mainstream and, in particular, into the consciousness of white, middle-class American women. First, in 1961, President John F. Kennedy created the President's Commission on the Status of Women. Kennedy modeled his commission after the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women and President Harry Truman's President's Committee on Civil Rights, both commissioned in 1946. Kennedy's commission was meant to be a middle ground between two important factions of his support within the Democratic Party, labor and women. Labor, which had been a significant base within the Democratic Party for over 60 years, opposed the Equal Rights Amendment because it would do away with protective legislation that placed restrictions on where, when, and how long women could work, particularly in industrial jobs. Women who were strong supporters of the Equal Rights Amendment saw the protective legislation as out of date, predicated on an antiquated idea of women's role in society and capacity at work. For them, these jobs were dangerous for everyone, not just women. Protective legislation that singled out women were based on outdated ideas of women's natural roles in society, but also limited labor rights for men. The commission was meant to address all concerns with the study and to take the temperature of what life was like in the United States for women 40 years after the ratification of the 19th Amendment. The commission was headed by former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt and consisted of women and men from all different economic, political, social, and educational positions. It attempted to address not only the divide between labor and women's rights activists, but to also include class and race-based perspectives. On October 11, 1963, the commission issued its final report, titled American Women. The report criticized the lack of freedom American women had in a free society, while recognizing the importance of their traditional gender roles. But in a nod to labor, it did not outright endorse the Equal Rights Amendment, claiming women were already protected under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, an argument that would be championed by small government, anti-ERA women's organizations in coming decades. Instead, it recommended that the inequality between men and women be addressed through a U.S. Supreme Court case that would hold that the 14th Amendment applied to women. 
Eventually, it would be through court cases, many of which were argued in front of the court by future Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg that would overturn legal and customary inequality, but using a section of yet-to-be-written legislation, not the 14th Amendment. The inequality that women face at almost every stage of life shocked most Americans. As representatives of the commission made the rounds to various media outlets, including the Today Show, Americans, and in particular American women, wondered what they could do to change the situation. At the same time that Kennedy's commission revealed its findings, journalist Betty Friedan published a book that would bring a similar message to millions of women around the world. The Feminine Mystique sold 1.4 million copies in its first printing and was a national awakening for many women and men about the realities of women's lives. According to Friedan, in 1957, she was asked to conduct a survey of her former college classmates at her alma mater, Smith College, a prestigious women's college in Northampton, Massachusetts. Fifteen years after they graduated, Smith wanted to know what they were doing and how they were using their education. What Friedan discovered was that while many of them spoke of aspirations to become professionals in the workforce, many of them were living as housewives, and not an insignificant portion expressed frustration with their circumstances. In the book, Friedan mixed the results of the survey with psychology, media, and advertising to paint a picture of life for the mostly white, middle-class American woman that contradicted the shared belief that women in the 1950s measured fulfillment solely by their position as wife and mother. The disquiet identified at the center of Friedan's book, The Problem That Has No Name, along with the President's Commission, made it abundantly clear that something was not right in the lives of all American women. In subsequent years, scholars would challenge the originality and centrality of the feminine mystique. Historian Joanne Meyerowitz argues that Friedan's assessment of mass-circulated magazines' portrayal of women as submissive in domestic roles was exaggerated and overly simplistic. As mentioned earlier, historian Dan Horowitz argues that she was not simply influenced by her and her classmates' fall into suburban housewifery. And let's not forget that this large book talks about a small portion of American women. However, Friedan's book, exaggerated or not, was part of a tipping point for many Americans. A year later, President Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 into law. While most Americans associate this act with African-American civil rights, and rightly so, there is one section, Title VII, that added sex as a protected class from discrimination. Thrown in at the last minute by a Democratic representative from Virginia named Howard W. Smith, scholars questioned the point of this section, in particular if it was meant to put the final act in jeopardy of passing at all. This section went nearly unnoticed in the celebration and criticism that surrounded this monumental act, mostly of racial justice. But women noticed. By 1966, the federal government had done little to enforce Title VII. That was about to change. Activism can come in a number of different forms. Some we recognize. We can see its pageantry, showiness, and public image. Other forms take a little bit of work to see. It can be working toward passing legislation or supporting local candidates off-camera. It can be withholding rent in the face of neglected maintenance. It can also be a tiny person with a grand vision arguing the validity of the slightest of legislative openings in front of the Supreme Court. It is a single woman speaking truth to power against workplace sexual harassment and millions of women taking it to the streets. It is any form of action that attempts to change the circumstances of people to be more equitable, to require people and institutions to enforce the basic social, political, legal, and economic rights. In 1966, in response to inactivity on Title VII and growing awareness of sex-based inequality, 
A group of women, including Betty Friedan, Shirley Chisholm, and Polly Murray, set out to form an advocacy and activist organization for women, similar in structure to the African-American organization, the NAACP. The National Organization for Women hoped to increase women's access to colleges and universities, and in particular graduate and professional schools, and professional work and careers in all fields. Within the first two years, NOW wrote a statement of purpose and issued a Bill of Rights that spelled out not only what women wanted, but how to get it. In addition to an express need for maternity leave, tax deductions for caregiving, and rights to control their own reproductive lives, two important legislative points became the focus of NOW, the passage and ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment and the enforcement of the prohibitions against workplace sex discrimination in Title VII. But not all women were or felt represented by the activism and platform of NOW. While the membership included African-American, working-class, and ethnic minority women, the basic demand centered on those of middle-class white women. It was often the racial segregation layered on top of gender discrimination in hiring and so much more that got left out of the mainstream message. Additionally, women of color, economically marginalized women, lesbians, and women who wanted more radical, systemic change found the middle-class liberalism of now did not meet their needs. Often they attempted to find a home in racial and economic civil rights movements like African-American organizations such as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Black Panther Party, and the Black Power Movement. While they found racial solidarity, they also found themselves relegated to traditional gender roles and confronting group leadership unwilling to and uninterested in examining the casual and overt sexism expressed in these organizations. Dolores Huerta, the co-founder of the National Farm Workers Union and a lifelong activist for economic justice, organized the 1965 Delano Grape Strike that first brought union contracts to migrant agricultural laborers, extended federal aid to include migrant workers, and led to legislation that reshaped farm relations in California. While Huerta's co-founder, Cesar Chavez, is often recognized as a charismatic voice and face of the movement, Huerta was its master organizer. The sexism within the movement that assumed Chavez to be the sole leader was often stifling to Huerta's own activism and career. For many women, it seemed that there was no true activist home for what Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw articulated in 1989 as intersectionality. Not wanting to sublimate a part of the whole, women began to found feminist and women's rights organizations that more closely addressed their personal or community needs. Black feminism developed around the idea that a woman's gender and racialized experiences cannot be separated. And really, why should they be? To deny one part of who they were, black feminists argued, was to not understand how legislative and political changes truly affected them. As Dr. Angela Davis wrote in her book, Women, Race, and Class, in issues of work outside of the home and reproductive health, the circumstances of white and black women were different and often opposite from each other. And so why would a universal solution work for all women? Dr. Donna Drucker, a historian and senior advisor for English as the Language of Instruction at the Technical University in Darmstadt, Germany, examines this further in her book, Contraception, A Concise History. In speaking with me, she articulated these differences not only between white and black women, but between white women and women of color around the world. I define reproductive justice based on the definitions of a group of African-American women activists who were looking for a framework to define their work beginning in the early 1990s. They were challenging some elements of the uh, Clinton era welfare reform and wanted to bring uh, reproductive issues into, into the conversation about welfare. 
And so to use one definition, uh, reproductive justice is a movement building and organizing framework that identifies how reproductive oppression is the result of the intersection of multiple oppressions and is inherently connected to the struggle for social justice and human rights. So what does that mean? It means that there are three basic elements to this reproductive justice framework and that they're all based in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights established by the United Nations in December of 1948. And so one of the rights in the UN Declaration is the right to found a family. And, but it doesn't go into a lot of detail about that. So what reproductive justice does is basically expand on that and say that there are three fundamental elements of reproductive justice. The right to have a child, the right not to have a child, and the right to parent a child in a healthy and safe community. And they deliberately call it a framework, so it's a way for people to um, organize uh, effort kind of on the ground or in, in policy and politics to forward these rights on a very wide and yet flexible scale. In many ways, these different desires can be understood best as differences between reproductive rights, in particular rights of access that middle-class white American women tend to focus on in reproductive justice. There's a group called um, the Asian Communities for Reproductive Justice, which is now called Forward Together. And they articulate these differences um, between movements um, headed by white women and movements headed by uh, women of color. And they outline differences between reproductive health, reproductive rights, and reproductive justice. And so justice is the definition that I just uh, read a couple of moments ago. And reproductive health, on the other hand, is more of a service delivery framework. So is service X available to this person? And then reproductive rights is more not of a certain on a service definition per se, but more of like a legal framework. So does this person have access to particular services? Um, not on the ground service delivery, but is it legal for someone in a particular area to access a particular service? And so reproductive justice goes a step above that to um, incorporate uh, reproductive rights as human rights. And so those first two areas of interest, reproductive health and reproductive rights, are what most women's groups have focused on, or I'm sorry, what white women's groups have focused on, the direct access to services and the legal right to those services. And a lot of that effort and outreach and advocacy has focused on abortion and to a lesser, lesser extent contraception. But reproductive justice, again, um, kind of pulls back just from that very important, but um, perhaps um, uh, somewhat narrow focus just on the day-to-day, -day. can a person can a person get access to birth control? Can a person get access to a pap smear? Um, that kind of thing, to stepping back and looking at the structures 
um, outside just the legal system that makes service provision possible or impossible and help people think of um, more interconnected rights um, that address and incorporate reproductive rights, but don't um, stop there. And I think that's really the, um, the gift, I guess you could say, of, of reproductive justice is that it intersects not only reproductive justice, but it also connects like racial, you know, sexual, um, political justice and uh, looks at these um, elements as part of a whole. While many women's organizations focused on legal, political, and economic rights, women also explored feminism and activism through art, culture, and organizational experimentation. Chicanas used poetry, sculpture, painting, plays, novels, and other forms of cultural and artistic expression to explore political and cultural themes, as well as to confront traditional Mexican-American values, in particular traditional gender norms. In 1973, the Women's Building, an arts and education center, opened in Los Angeles. It was a woman-owned building, and the center had a number of art and multiple space galleries. However, women of color experienced racism, and very few non-white women exhibited their art at the Women's Building. In response, Chicana artists formed their own art collectives, in particular Las Chicanas, as a woman-only, unsegregated space open to women of color exhibiting. Lesbians, who were part of the founding of the National Organization for Women, also felt isolated from the organization's heterosexual focus. Friedan and other heterosexual feminists feared that the federal government's false association between homosexuality and communism, as well as more general anti-homosexual and anti-lesbian sentiment among the membership, would draw negative attention to their organization and tar it as a radical fringe movement instead of a civil rights organization. While not all members of NOW felt as Friedan did, the fears about members being stereotyped as mannish and brutish, paired with Friedan's scathing and outright homophobia, left little room for open and out lesbians. At the May 1970 Second Congress to Unite Women, women identified as the Lavender Menace, an informal group of radical lesbian feminists, took over the stage to protest lesbian issues being excluded from the meeting's agenda. Taking the feminist motto, the personal is political, to heart, the Lavender Menace marked a turning point for feminist activism and the following year now adopted lesbian rights as legitimate concerns of feminism. In addition to personal politics, ideologically radical women's groups exploded in the 1970s, in particular in New York City. Not satisfied with the now message of enforcing existing laws and fitting into established structures, radical feminism experimented with institutions, or more to the point, with destroying them and starting anew. Based on 19th century collectives, groups like the New York Radicals, Cell 16, and the Red Stockings combined anarchism, communism, and in the case of Cell 16, celibacy, separation, and karate to restructure living arrangements and relationships completely outside the patriarchy. While these organizations appealed to more limited tastes of feminist expression, they did address the need for systemic change, in particular around personal safety, rape, and domestic violence, that women from the 1970s onward increasingly demanded be addressed by communities, states, and institutions. While the personalist political became a rallying cry for many women activists, others saw the legislative and judicial route to be more effective. There has often been a tension between the social and political arm and the legal arm of the collective movement body. Even as they are aiming for the same goal, in this case greater equality and equity for women, they didn't always agree on the pace and the fashion to get there. Social and political movements are in the streets, are theatrical, and are sometimes violent. Writing legislation and arguing court cases are maybe less showy and are definitely slower, but can sometimes affect deeper and longer-lasting change. 
1972, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a young Rutgers University law professor, wife, and mother of two, co-founded the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU. In previous decades, the ACLU had not focused on women's rights, citing free speech, even sexually harassing speech, to be a more important issue. The creation of a women's rights section meant the organization was broadening its focus to include community outreach, litigation, and public education on women's rights. It also meant that it would use the power of some of the best civil rights lawyers to file suit against Title VII violations. Over the duration of her time at the Women's Rights Project, Ginsburg personally argued seven cases in front of the U.S. Supreme Court and participated in more than 200. Beginning with the 1971 case Reed v. Reed, Ginsburg successfully argued that the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause applied to women. Over her time with the Women's Rights Project, she slowly taught the U.S. Supreme Court to see that protective laws and customs were discriminatory and that they reinforced the notion that women needed to be dependent on men. Her cases built on each other in a slow but steady, methodical fashion that undoubtedly annoyed social activists. In fact, during her confirmation hearings to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1993, feminist organizations initially gave her only lukewarm support because her groundbreaking work appeared to be so common sense that its radical and transformative nature had all but been forgotten. In 1973, Ginsburg filed the first federal case challenging the practice of involuntary sterilization against the Eugenics Board of North Carolina on behalf of Neil Cox. Cox had been sterilized under the North Carolina program to sterilize people identified as, quote, mentally defective, with the threat of losing her family's welfare benefits. While the court agreed that it was a violation of her rights, they declared the issue moot because the program had ended. In the context of race, reproductive rights, and justice, sterilization demonstrates just how differently doctors treated women of color and white women. Dr. Donna Drucker. I mean, I think the, the clearest example of the kind of double-sidedness of reproductive justice or the different racial um, racial factors is sterilization. Um, particularly in the 1970s, um, there were um, women, Latina women um, at the University of California, I'm sorry, the University of Southern California birthing center that were sterilized against their will. And that action by those doc doctors at this university center uh, galvanized um, movements against sterilization abuse in the US. But on the other side, and at the same time, there were white women who were advocating for their right to be sterilized. Because at the time, in the, again, this is the 60s and 70s into the early 80s, um, white women who requested sterilization were also often subjected to something called the 120 rule, which was um, your age as a woman plus the number of children you had multiplied together had to reach at least 120 before a hospital board would consider sterilization for you. And so it's very clear that, you know, um, hospital boards in the U.S. wanted to promote uh, white women's reproduction, but also some of the same institutions or related institutions would want to um, limit um, reproduction by women of color. And so the right to have sterilization and the right not to be sterilized are both forms of reproductive justice, but just in different contexts. In response to this discriminatory treatment, women generally founded women's health centers that followed the woman-centered reproductive health model of Planned Parenthood. 
However, not all women felt comfortable with a one-size-fits-all reproductive health center. Once again, Dr. Drucker. What women of color end up doing is not forming necessarily their own health centers, but they form their own advocacy organizations. And oftentimes those are in response to reproductive rights abuses, like uh, the one at the University of Southern California Medical Center in Los Angeles. Um, there were Native Americans, particularly on the uh, Lakota Reservation in North, North and South Dakota, um, the Crow Reservation in Montana. They both had very, not very strong, but growing organizations that fought against sterilization abuse. And so eventually over time, women of color organizations um, start moving just from maybe a necessary place of um, defending their rights not to be sterilized, um, more towards a sort of a reactive movement, more towards a proactive movement, looking to um, like shape like the Indian Health Service, for example, and um, changing policy so that women could have more of a say over their reproductive abilities and that, so that they could, you know, smudge, um, you know, various herbs in the birthing room as part of a cultural tradition and things, things like that. But the mid-1970s reproductive justice case that defined the era was the U.S. Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision that protected the privacy of abortion decisions between a woman and her doctor, in particular during the first trimester. During the 1960s and 1970s, states had been slowly changing their abortion laws to match the updated practices, medical procedures that no longer killed women at an alarming rate. For some, the court decision aligned with this trend. For others, it jumped the gun. For still others, it went way too far. If you're looking for a single moment and reason that a movement ends, you will probably be disappointed. Reproductive rights that fully allowed women to step outside their natural roles and not have children, but still have sex, may have been too much change for many middle-class Americans, at least when combined with a slowing economy, a less than satisfactory end to military engagement in Vietnam, a disgraced presidency that would eventually end in resignation, the rise of black power, and gay liberation. And so, as the Equal Rights Amendment went out for ratification, conservative activists began to push back. Conservatives had always been part of the women's movement and women's rights conversation. Whether it was advocating against the vote, against alcohol, or against systemic changes to acceptable gender roles, there has often been a well-organized conservative voice. In the 1970s, the most significant voice came from Phyllis Schlafly, the founder of the Eagle Forum and organizer of the Stop ERA campaign. The Eagle Forum was a conservative political interest group that primarily focused on social issues and identified as supportive of family values, individual liberty, and private enterprise. In 1972, Schlafly turned her attention to the newly passed, yet to be ratified, Equal Rights Amendment. The ERA challenged Schlafly's and many Americans' beliefs that women and men were fundamentally different and that those differences needed to be supported, not erased, by law. With a cleverly chosen acronym, Stop Taking Our Privilege, Stop ERA attacked the ERA during a critical last phase of its ratification process, eventually stalling its momentum and ending its chances of ratification when its time clock expired in 1982, with only 35 of the 38 states necessary for ratification. 
Schlafly argued that law and custom protected gender-specific privileges for women and that the ERA would take away the right of women to be dependent wives, the right to inherit her husband's social security benefits and to be given alimony, the right to be exempt from the military draft, and the end of gender-specific bathrooms. These last two points, neither of which were in the ERA or discussed benefits of the ERA, touched a nerve with many Americans in light of the Vietnam conflict and the gay liberation movement. To add to the media conversation, Schlafly and her supporters showed up at ERA-related events in state legislatures wearing dresses with homemade apple pies and jam. In the end, the movement not only stopped the ratification of the ERA, but it also exacerbated many of the pre-existing divisions within the women's movement and organizations, as well as within the competing definitions of feminism. It emphasized the most radical voices as representative of the whole and painted the whole women's movement as entirely unreasonable. As an activist, Schlafly continued to speak out against abortion, same-sex marriage, and in a 2007 speech delivered at Bates College, she denied the existence of marital rape. By 1982, feminism had become a dirty word, and the women's movement appeared to be splintered beyond repair. For nearly the entire decade, feminists became embroiled in cultural sex wars over pornography. Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin argued that pornography was inherently exploitative of women. While the 1980s saw a lot of firsts for women, the first astronaut to fly in space, first Supreme Court justice, first candidate on a major party presidential ticket, it did not see a continued activism for expanding women's rights. Where you did see activism was in conservative women's organizations. While conservative women had often felt outside of and at odds with the mainstream women's organizations like now, they did connect to feminism and the ongoing conversation on women's rights and place in American life, just not always in the same ways. Conservative women attempted to stake a claim in feminism by arguing that women had freedom of choice to leave bad work and home situations and didn't need more legislation. Evangelical women invested in the dual and distinct gender roles between men and women, but argued that both had responsibilities to uplift each other as a form of feminism. Both feminisms expressed a desire to adapt traditional values into the modern world. Liberal and radical feminists remained skeptical. Their skepticism was piqued in a number of ways, no more so than with the rising activism against abortion rights. Though unsuccessful in fully removing abortion rights, conservative politicians and religious leaders continued to support congressional and state legislative restrictions to funding and barriers to access. Conservative women found a home in organizations that built social and political pressure and brought it to bear on local, state, and national politics. As a new decade started, no one could really have predicted the seismic changes of 1991. During the Summer of Mercy, an anti-abortion organization, Operation Rescue, sent thousands of protesters to Wichita, Kansas, to participate in sit-in protests, harassment, and blockades of clinic entrances. While subsequent Operation Rescue missions proved less successful and less disruptive, it was clear that anti-abortion activism was growing in intensity and challenging not simply rights to the medical procedure, but in fact rights of access and freedom of speech. In June of 1992, the U.S. Supreme Court's Planned Parenthood v. Casey decision upheld the right to an abortion in Roe, but altered the way it considered restrictions on abortion, creating the undue burden standard, a way to evaluate if a state law is putting up too many hurdles to women's access to abortion. This case opened the door for state legislatures to pass laws that attempted to push the boundary of what constituted an undue burden. Many feminist activists felt despondent. But it was in October of 1991, the year before, that the conversation had begun to turn around. 
During the information gathering stage of the Senate's confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill's accusations of workplace harassment came to light. During the 1980s, Hill had worked twice for Thomas, once at the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights and a second time at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Hill, a Yale Law School graduate, left public service in 1983 and took a position first teaching at the O.W. Coburn School of Law at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then at the University of Oklahoma College of Law. As an Oklahoma native, she was excited to be around her family and carved out a niche teaching contract law and serving as an advisor to the Black Student Union and as a mentor to young Black law students in a predominantly white environment. And that was where she was in 1991, when she was contacted to file a character assessment of her former boss, Clarence Thomas. Concerned about the impact her statements might have on herself, on her career, and on her family, Hill hesitated to come forward with her evidence of workplace sexual harassment. But she did. During her testimony in October 1991, millions of Americans learned the details of Thomas's alleged sexually explicit behavior toward Hill. What also became clear, especially to millions of working women, was that the all-male Judicial Committee had no idea what it was like to be a woman in the workforce. They could not believe that a woman would continue to work for and with a man who harassed her in such a way, regardless of her career and her ambitions. It also drew Americans into a conversation on appropriate workplace behavior and the unfinished work of the women's movement. Additionally, the optics of the all-male, all-white panel, unable to understand and believe fully what Hill articulated, created a boom of women who ran for office at all levels to change that. Supported by grassroots organizations like Emily's List, 103 women won election to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1992, and the U.S. Senate saw its female membership more than triple from two to six and eventually to seven with a Texas special election. A generation later, as millions of American women watched Dr. Christine Blasey Ford make eerily similar accusations of sexual assault against another Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, they were not surprised in the final outcome. They knew that while a lot had changed, very little had changed. Younger women also took up the mantle of activism. In 1989, Kimberly Crenshaw articulated in a single word, intersectionality, what a lot of feminists of color felt in the 1960s and 1970s, that it was impossible to separate their racial and ethnic identity from their gender. Intertwined experiences informed their choices, their lives, and their activism and fit into Generation X's definition of feminism perfectly, along with an expression of individuality and the punk spirit of the Riot Girl subculture that drove through to mainstream pop culture feminism. These women were interested in considering and able to connect to global feminism, and global women's rights movements. They were equally invested in e-zines and abolishing gender-based stereotypes, advocating for working-class women's rights, and tuning into the Fourth World Congress on Women in Beijing in 1995 to hear Hillary Rodham Clinton declare that women's rights are human rights, wearing makeup, and playing field hockey. Really, just living up to what Jennifer Baumgartner and Amy Richards stated in their 2000 classic Manifesta, quote, the fact that feminism is no longer limited to arenas where we expect to see it now, Ms., women's studies, and red-suited congresswomen. So now, here we are, two decades into the 21st century, and many women are asking the question, if we've really come a long way, baby, how much longer is it to full citizenship and equality? In all of the myriad ways we have seen women participate as activists, that question remains unanswerable. Social and political activism have pushed politicians to create laws, 
and slow but steady judicial planning have made institutions enforce them. And we've just barely scratched the surface of the deep, deep history of women's activism. What should be clear now, though, is that there is no one way to be an activist. However, there are some familiar cues. In January 2017, when millions of Americans participated in the Women's March on Washington, occupying the same streets as Alice Paul and the 1913 Women's Suffrage Parade, we recognized activism renewed. Still millions more marched in connected protests across the country and around the world. Maybe something was changing. While the image of the pink pussy hat will forever be a cultural touchstone to that moment, the march itself is important for its continuity with activism and activists' attempts to right the wrongs of sex-based institutional and systemic inequity and inequality. But the fact that the basic constitutional rights remain unfulfilled a century later makes you ask if, and how deeply, things actually have changed. Does it matter that I have a mortgage in my name if domestic violence remains the number one killer of women? Putting pressure to bear on politicians remains an important and necessary part of responsible citizenship. But what about those women who answer the call to elected office? In the next and final installment of Hindsight, we will explore the history of women running for office. We will learn about the women who chose to put themselves forward, sometimes even before they had the right to vote, and how that changed our idea of who is a politician. And we will examine what it means to the nation's policies and political conversations to have women have an elected seat at the table. Hindsight is hosted by Dr. Robin Henry and produced by Fletcher Powell in the studios of KMUW in Wichita, Kansas. The digital editor for the podcast is Beth Golay. All artwork for Hindsight is created by Jordan Kirtley. Support for Hindsight comes from Drs. Martha and Daniel Householder, the George R. Tiller MD Memorial Fund for the Advancement of Women's Health, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.